Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity, looking at what is typically called heresy in the history of Christianity, and particularly in the 2nd and 3rd centuries CE. I'll repeat my earlier recommendation, and that is regarding the advanced nature of this particular series. We're getting into forms of Christianity that are very complicated and, to most modern ears, very foreign and different than what is usually associated with Christianity. So I would suggest that you listen to at least the first two series of this podcast, namely the series on Paul and his communities, and the series on early Christian portraits of Jesus that looks at how some early Christians interpreted Jesus. These will at least give you some basis on which to understand these more complicated forms of Christianity that are the center of this third series on the so-called heresies. In this particular episode, we begin to introduce what has traditionally been called Gnosticism, but that in a way is far more complicated and actually engulfs a variety of forms of Christianity that have usually been lumped together a bit uncritically in the past. But what I attempt to do in this particular episode is actually generalize. Generalize about what is common among the Nag Hammadi collection of writings, many of which share in common a set of assumptions about the world, assumptions about both the divine world and the material world, and assumptions about what salvation is and about the condition of humanity. And so in this episode, I do attempt to get at what generalizations you can make about the worldview, about the way of looking at the world and the cosmos that we find in many, though not all, of the writings that were found in that collection known as the Nag Hammadi Collection of Writings, a collection of codices that happen to be discovered together in that town of Nag Hammadi that we discussed previously. In the process of trying to outline what commonalities there are that help us to understand the worldview of these writings, I deal with three main issues. First of all, I look at, briefly, the philosophical background that is assumed by many of these authors, namely the Platonic, or better put, Middle Platonic, worldview, and a set of assumptions that are shared both by these Christian writings of the Nag Hammadi collection and by Greek philosophers, by Platonic philosophers in the 2nd century CE. After dealing with that first issue, I then move on to another characteristic that's common across the board to some degree, and that is the use of Jewish scripture. Many of the Nag Hammadi writings are interested in expounding and interpreting Jewish scripture, but in a very particular way, as we'll soon learn. Thirdly, I deal with the characteristic common to many of the Nag Hammadi documents, namely the centrality of knowledge, of gnosis, at the center of their overall worldview. Bound up, I explain, within this focus on knowledge, is the issue of what salvation is. And so in the latter part of this episode, I expand upon not only the fact that they believe in the centrality of knowledge, but I try and explain what that knowledge is. What knowledge brings salvation? And once again, I generalize in a way that will at least give you a basis from which we can move forward to the details of particular writings. We can't assume they're all the same, 
However, there are certain commonalities among the Nag Hammadi writings and among the worldviews that are reflected there that I try and explain here. And the knowledge that is the center of salvation for many of the Nag Hammadi writings is centered on the idea of a spiritual realm, a perfect spiritual realm that was there originally and a mistake that took place in that spiritual realm that led to the creation of the current material realm that we humans live in. This is central to the overall scenario of many of the Nag Hammadi writings within their worldview, the way they look at the world. This mistake that took place resulted in the creation of the Creator God of the Hebrew Bible. This is one of the distinctive features of the Nag Hammadi worldview even though there's differences among them. Namely, that the creator of this world, in the view of many of the Nag Hammadi writings, the creator of this world, the creator God of the Hebrew Bible, is not the same God who sent the Savior figure Christ to bring knowledge. I explain this in more detail in this episode. So I hope you enjoy this initial dipping into the overall worldview that is shared by many of the Nag Hammadi documents. Always remember, however, that the generalizations I'm making in this particular episode need to be more sophisticated than they are. We need to go into more detail when we move on to particular writings and not assume that they're all the same, even though they share some commonalities in worldview. We need to get into the details of what forms of Christianity are represented in particular Nag Hammadi or other writings within early Christianity, within these writings that are traditionally grouped under the rubric of Gnosticism. So I hope you enjoy this introductory episode on what is traditionally called the Gnostic worldview. today, we want to be problematizing the category of Gnosticism, getting a clearer sense of why that category is somewhat problematic. And then as we move through each of the writings we look at in the Nag Hammadi documents, we need to start afresh and not assume the exact same thing we saw with previous documents. We might see some similarities, and we can point out similarities in worldview, similarities in practice if we can find them, but let's not presume that they all think alike because that's the very issue that is the problem with the category of Gnosticism. The presumption of many scholars that there's some one thing to describe, that there's a unified religion that we can label Gnosticism. That's the problem that Williams gets at, and that's the problem we need to get at in order to start to plot out the variety of Christian groups that were, or Christian authors that we're seeing in looking at the Nag Hammadi writings. Michael Williams' Rethinking Gnosticism is a very influential book, is a very convincing book. So although not all scholars would wholeheartedly adopt his approach to things, it has definitely influenced the whole direction in which the Nag Hammadi writings and the variety of Christianity encompassed within them is studied. Let me just give you a little bit of an overview. Remember the category of Gnosticism was created by scholars. No one in antiquity, and this is something that Williams is emphasizing, there was no use of that term to designate a movement. Sometimes you do create a category does not exist in the culture you are studying or in the time period you're studying. However, you carefully construct a category, testing it, developing it in a particular way to make it nuanced so that it works 
and us moderns trying to make sense of another culture or another time period. So you have to do that sometimes as scholars, make up categories carefully. However, what Williams is arguing is this category is not carefully made up. This category does not work. Not only is it not attested in antiquity, but it does not work as accurately describing a unified movement that existed in antiquity. Williams states this, the problem is not with the data, but with the category. The data, the phenomena that have come collectively to be called Gnosticism, are a truly fascinating assortment of religious phenomena. What has happened, however, is the history of their study is that they have come to be routinely herded into the same corral and treated as though they are best understood when considered to be the same breed, with the same ancestry, the same essential constitution, the same disposition, and the same habits. In the following chapters, we will examine such assumptions while taking a closer look at the supposedly Gnostic sources described above and several more. What this examination will show is that Gnosticism is probably not what it is so often purported to be. Or better put, the sources that are routinely classified as Gnostic do not, in fact, share some of the important features that are usually treated as the characteristic or identifying traits of Gnosticism. So that's a good summary of his entire argument in the book, in a way. Basically, Williams approaches the subject by identifying what scholars usually consider characteristic of Gnosticism. So this category, Gnosticism. Many scholars of the past have spoken as though there's some unified movement with many of the Nagamati documents reflecting that unified movement, that unified worldview and that you can almost speak of it as a religion, Gnosticism. And that's the problem that Williams is getting at, is the problem in thinking that way. The way he approaches deconstructing that overall traditional view of Gnosticism is to identify the key characteristics. So he lists and, and deconstructs the main characteristics of Gnosticism according to the scholars who believe that's the best way to speak. Here are some of the main characteristics traditionally associated with this category of Gnosticism that Williams, bit by bit, works through, qualifies, or deconstructs altogether. First of all, the notion that Gnosticism is characterized by protest exegesis. In other words, by a mode of interpreting that by nature protests against traditional interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. Another element of it is sort of value reversal, where characters in the material that is that is being interpreted, where the characters there are inverted in terms of evil and good. So the good characters become evil. Traditionally, in other words, a figure like the snake in the garden would be considered a negative figure within some interpreters of the Bible. And so the idea here is that there's a value reversal here where the snake becomes good. Traditionally, the creator God of the Hebrew Bible is a good figure. In Gnosticism, it's, it's an evil figure. Although there's some truth to some of these things we're just mentioning here, what Williams really draws attention to is when you look at the actual process of interpretation within a variety of Nag Hammadi documents, you begin to see a great variety in approaches, not a total consistency in approaches, let alone a consistency in protesting against something. The second main characteristic that Williams works through and, and qualifies 
and to some degree deconstructs is the anti-cosmic or world rejection ideas that are attributed to Gnostics and Gnosticism. In other words, traditionally, with scholars using this category of Gnosticism to group together a whole lot of people, they attribute to all of those writings an anti-world stance. Now, there's some truth to this still. However, there's been an overemphasis on negativity about the world and an ignoring of elements in Nag Hammadi documents and other Gnostic sources, elements that point to less negative attitudes about this world. Not only that, but Williams goes on to argue that there's evidence within the Nag Hammadi writings and other Gnostic sources that point to the positive attitude towards the world around them. And one of the interesting ways in which this takes place is their positive attitude towards contemporary philosophy within the world in which they live. They don't shut themselves off from the world and think of themselves as sectarian and, and, and apart from the world in a sociological sense. Instead, they actually have fully adopted a lot of the intellectual traditions of the Greco-Roman world in regard to philosophy and Platonic philosophy. Here's the third one, hatred of the body. And this is closely related to the previous one. Traditionally, Gnosticism is described as having the characteristic of hating the body. Now again, there's some truth in this, but what Williams does is carefully analyzes all kinds of Nag Hammadi documents, all kinds of documents traditionally considered Gnostic, with regard to issues of the body. And he begins to see a far more complex situation than a simple, complete antibody. Instead, he finds, yes, traditions of negativity towards the body existing in quite a few places. However, also traditions that are a little bit less negative towards the body and that see a purpose for the body, for example. Another characteristic that he tries to deconstruct to some degree that is traditionally associated with Gnosticism is the ethics of Gnostics. Traditionally, Gnosticism's ethics have been described as either ascetic or libertinarianism. Either refraining from bodily activity, from sex, from food, and sort of living a simple ascetic, or because of the rejection of the body and because of the downplaying of bodily things, a free-for-all sex fest approach to the whole thing. What Williams does a good job of doing is, first of all, assessing the clear evidence of ascetic practices in a good number of Nag Hammadi and other documents. So he does acknowledge the, the tendency towards asceticism in some of the documents. However, there are varieties in how that asceticism is imagined and practiced. More importantly, on the libertinarian side of this whole dichotomy, in other words, the description uh, of Gnostics as sometimes being a free-for-all in terms of ethics because they don't care about this world, it doesn't matter what you do with the body and therefore do whatever the hell you want, that idea. This actually arises from something you all are very familiar with. Namely, when you read anti-heretical sources, what do they claim about heresies? Epiphanius is perhaps the most extreme case of it, where he has these lurid details of all the sexual activities of a certain Gnostic group called the Fibionites. These sorts of accusations arise out of common stockpile, mudslinging, name-calling techniques, where you're an in-group and there's someone other than you, and you don't like them a lot, so the, one of the first strategies is the mudslinging, including the sexual accusations. And in this case, Jesus followers accusing other Jesus followers of that sort of technique. 
trying to distinguish themselves. It's a sociological process of a group distinguishing itself from other groups. In this case, groups that all follow Jesus. You can't make much of it, can you? And so this helps Williams to tear apart another main characteristic usually attributed to the category of Gnosticism. So that gives you a general overview of some of the contributions of Williams in critiquing the category of Gnosticism. He draws attention to the fact that there was no unified movement with very clearly identifiable characteristics that we can label Gnosticism. Instead, there's a variety of things going on in writings that we find in Nag Hammadi collection and in the opponents of some of the church fathers that scholars have in the past sometimes somewhat uncritically grouped together and thought of as a unified movement. In this course, we'll be taking more of a specific approach to specific documents and asking the question of what is going on in terms of belief and practice in this particular Nag Hammadi document. But nonetheless, we need to begin by doing some generalization. But the generalizations I'm doing here are not proposing that there are certain characteristics of the religion of Gnosticism, not at all. Instead, I'm drawing attention to some common denominators among some or many of the writings that ended up collected together in the Nag Hammadi collection. What I want to do right now is just outline some common elements that we'll encounter in the Nag Hammadi documents. That'll give you a sense of why they may have been collected together. I'm giving you the generalities that are somewhat common to most of them. But what we're more interested in as we go further in the course, well, how do they differ? What type of Christianity am I seeing here? Can I group these two different authors together? If I can, in what ways can I group them together? In what ways can I not group them together? First thing I want to talk about is the philosophical basis of these types of Christianity that are often labeled Gnosticism. One of the things that is important to begin with and that we'll need to return to again quite extensively in subsequent discussions is the philosophical basis of much of the thought we will find in many Nag Hammadi writings. In particular, the Platonic, or the philosophy of Plato, plays an important role in understanding the Nag Hammadi writings. So most of the documents from Nag Hammadi date to the second century CE. And at that time, the form of Platonism within philosophy that was prominent was known as Middle Platonism. And there are many characteristics of these documents from Nag Hammadi that share things in common with Middle Platonism and with Platonic philosophy generally. Let me talk about some of the key ones and then unpack some of it as we go along. One thing that is true of Platonic philosophy, even from the time of Plato, is the idea that the whole universe is centered around one perfect good being. One perfect good principle is the source of everything, ultimately. And within Platonic thought, they have this notion of emanations from that one perfect principle, from that one perfect good, could be called a god, from God. The way to picture it is as though there's a stone dropped in water, and the waves going out are like emanations from the perfect principle. Many of the writers of the Nag Hammadi documents share in common this Platonic idea. But as the waves, the emanations, get further and further away from the one good perfect principle, they have less and less of the good and more and more defects as they get further and further away from the one perfect principle. So within Middle Platonism, there's this idea of all souls, our psyches, all our souls belong with the good and perfect principle. 
They have come from there and they will return to there. Sometimes the language of descent and ascent might be used. They will return to become part of what they really are a part of. Our bodies are either negative things, they could even be described as a prison, or they're simply discardable things. So all that I've said so far is generally characteristic of Platonic philosophers in the second century, Middle Platonism. It's also characteristic of many of the authors of the Nag Hammadi documents who believed in Jesus, but nonetheless held these views. Another characteristic of the Nag Hammadi authors is their use of Jewish scripture. Some of the authors, not all of them. Let's move on to a third characteristic. Knowledge and salvation, let me talk about briefly now. And this will be a place for me to spell out more of the emanations and the overall theory that we'll encounter in some Nag Hammadi documents. The overall theory about the universe and about human beings within the universe, about God and about salvation. The Nag Hammadi documents are focused on knowledge, gnosis. Most of the authors in the Nag Hammadi collection believe that the means towards salvation, and we'll have to see what salvation is, don't assume anything you know, the means to salvation is knowledge. Through knowing, you are saved. So this is a characteristic of most authors in the Nag Hammadi collection, traditionally called Gnosticism. What the knowledge is, is knowledge about the nature of the universe and the place of human beings within that universe. Knowledge of the nature of how the cosmos works is the means to salvation. I'm going to generalize here in a way that isn't specific to particular Nag Hammadi documents. I'm going to talk on a level that is true of many of them. And this is how the cosmos works. And this is the knowledge you need to gain salvation. So there is one good, perfect principle. Sometimes he's labeled father. That one good, perfect principle has thoughts, has things going on in his mind that actually result in emanations. Those emanations can be called things like first thought. A quite common one in several of the Nag Hammadi documents is Sophia. Wisdom, sometimes Christ, is one of the ions. They're like almost like gods. Ions is the word that's used by many of these authors. These emanations that are going on from the perfect principle in most Nag Hammadi documents result in the creation of one perfect, uncorrupted existence. The term that is sometimes used is a Greek term borrowed. You know how Coptic borrows from Greek, as I mentioned? Is pleroma, fullness. Not every Nag Hammadi document describes it with that term, but nonetheless, quite a few of them do. But most of Nag Hammadi documents have in their mythology, have in their ideas about what happened, that there was a corruption at one point, that there was a faulty activity that took place, an error. Sometimes the language of abortion is used to describe something that happened to the pleroma that resulted in the creation of what we know as the universe what we humans see as the world around us. The point is that there's something that breaks that fullness. It doesn't corrupt it internally, but results in something else developing that results in the need for salvation. And some of what goes out of the fullness are sparks of the fullness, sparks of light, sparks of that perfect light that is the one perfect principle, go out of the fullness, go where they do not belong, and need to return to where they belong going to turn out that those are sparks within the souls of human beings of a certain kind.
certain types of human beings have sparks from that perfect pleroma, from that perfect fullness. And many of the authors of the Nag Hammadi documents think that. So how did this come about? How did this error take place? Well, it's described in different ways in different Nag Hammadi documents. So once again, I'll try and generalize in a way that's somewhat true of most of them. And then I'll use specific examples. One of the emanations from that perfect principle within the Pleroma, within the fullness, made a mistake. That's how little bits and pieces of the perfect fullness ended up being disjointed from the per perfect fullness. Let me now use a specific example that doesn't hold for all of them, but that at least illustrates for you the ideas that are somewhat common to many of the Nag Hammadi documents. In some of the Nag Hammadi documents, it is Sophia, wisdom, as an emanation from the perfect principle, who through some fault of her own, unknown to the perfect principle from which she emanated, created a being that was inferior to the emanations of the Father. The emanation she had was defective. The emanation she had was actually creation of the Creator God. So the God of the Hebrew Bible in most Nag Hammadi documents, the result of a defective activity on the part of one of the perfect beings. So the Creator God, the Creator of this world, is that defective abortion. Creator God is often called the Demiurge. That's just the Greek word for Creator. Now, this defective being thinks that he is a god. And in some of the literature, it's that he's a jealous god. That being ends up thinking he's the ruler of all, ends up believing that he is the one that everyone should pay attention to. He is ignorant. He doesn't have gnosis. He doesn't have the knowledge of the good and perfect principle from which things emanated and that are all one and unified because he's out of it. Now, how do the sparks, how do the bits and pieces of the good and perfect existence, the fullness, end up being used? Also by accident. That creator God thinks he's God, and he starts to create the world. He creates the world we know around us, earth, people, animals. But before he creates all that, and in the process of creating that, he creates other beings. He has emanations from him that are just as defective, if not more defective, than him that are often called rulers. Greek word is archon. Not perfect like the emanations from the one good and per perfect principle of the heavenly realm and the spiritual realm, but imperfect because it's a material realm. Um, we have a dualism, a very stark dualism in the worldview of many of the authors of the Nag Hammadi documents between spiritual and material. There's two things, the spiritual realm and the material realm. And the dualism is very thorough in most of the Nag Hammadi documents. Spiritual realm good, material realm bad. This is how many of the authors of the Nag Hammadi documents think. But let's go on with the scenario of what's happening here, and sequentially in the mythology, sequentially in how this worldview works. So you now have a defective God that's illegitimate, who thinks he's wonderful and thinks he's God, who thinks everyone should pay attention to him, who unfortunately has power, unfortunately in the mindset of this worldview, unfortunately has enough power to create things, creates other archons, other rulers, other god-like beings, to control and to run the universe that he's creating, the universe that includes the world, includes human beings. In the process of creating human beings, sparks, little bits and pieces of that perfect spiritual realm get trapped 
or get implanted within human bodies. Depends which Nag Hammadi writer you read. Partly because that demiurge, this creator god, is from the divine realm. He possesses some elements of that. So in some of the Nag Hammadi documents, they'll talk about the creator god, just because of the fact he's from the spiritual realm, inbuilt into his creation. There's slight elements of something that's not defective within it. Slight elements of that perfect fullness still exists within the created world created by this ignorant, jealous creator god that says there are no other gods but me. Let's continue then on talking about the worldview somewhat held in common by most of the Nag Hammadi documents. And we've so far sketched out the whole existence of a perfect spiritual realm. And now, as a, a, a defect, the creation of a, a, a material realm. And that dualism is always active, spiritual versus material. And we're beginning to see how it is that some of the spiritual elements ended up being trapped in the bad material realm. So this is essential to the whole uh, worldview of these authors, and that is that there are elements of the perfect realm trapped, and they need to return to where they belong. And there's this looking forward to a time when everything will be reunited with the perfect fullness of that one perfect being and everything will return to the way it should have been in the first place, ultimately. And that's the ultimate salvation, everything returning to the way it should be. But there's more of the nitty-gritty in how that salvation takes place that we're getting into now. The next step in this way of thinking is this, that the good and perfect being that is at the center of the fullness found out of this defect, learned of this abortion, learned of this arrogant, ignorant God, that was a result of one of the beings of the perfect fullness, but nonetheless is defective. Learned about what had happened and had a plan developed in order to correct the error. As part of his plan, he designated one of his own emanations. One of the emanations immediately from him would have the job of going and sharing the knowledge that was necessary so that the sparks that are trapped in the material realm could be freed from the material realm and ascend again to the good, perfect fullness and return from where they came. So we're back to that platonic idea of returning from where you came. But in this case, the figure of Christ, quite often, is the emanation from the perfect being that gets designated as the role of going to share the knowledge that is necessary to free those elements of the perfect realm from being trapped in the material realm. Salvation for a human being is gaining the knowledge that this is that the thing I've just outlined to you over the last little while here, gaining that knowledge. Many of the Nag Hammadi documents, therefore, are presented in the form of the figure of Jesus, in other words, Christ, the divine being, sharing the knowledge. It's secret teachings of Jesus giving you the knowledge you need in order for the sparks to be set free and return to the perfect fullness, which is sometimes called Father. So they still sometimes use the language of Father and Son. I wanted to read you just uh, one passage from one document that we're going to read extensively later, now that I've sketched out that for you, and it'll give you a taste of the vocabulary that we'll encounter. Let me read from the Apocryphon of John, which... The monad is a monarchy with nothing above it. 
It is he who exists as God and Father of everything, the invisible one who is above everything, who exists as incorruption, which is in the pure light into which no eye can look. He is the invisible spirit of whom it is not right to think of him as a god or something similar, for he is more than a god, since there is nothing above him, for no one lords it over him, for he does not exist in something inferior to him, since everything exists in him, for it is he who establishes himself. He is eternal since he does not need anything, for he is total perfection. He did not lack anything that he might be completed by it. Rather, he is always completely perfect in light. He is unlimitable since there is no one prior to him to set limits to him. He is unsearchable since there exists no one prior to him to examine him. He is immeasurable since there was no one prior to him to measure him. He is invisible since no one saw him. He is eternal since he exists eternally. He is ineffable since no one was able to comprehend him to speak about him. He is unnameable since there is no one prior to him to give him a name. He is immeasurable light which is pure, holy and immaculate. He is ineffable being perfect in incorruptibility. He is not in perfection nor in blessedness nor in divinity but he is far superior. He is not corporeal, not bodily, nor is he incorporeal. He is neither large nor is he small. There is no way to say what is his quantity or what is his quality for no one can know him. He is not someone among other beings, rather he is far superior. Not that he is simply superior, but his essence does not partake in the ions, nor in time. For he who partakes in an ion was prepared beforehand. Time was not a portion to him, since he does not receive anything from another, for it would be received on loan. You get the idea. This is the sort of notion they have of that perfect being, and the way that they would try and express something about that perfect being. Here's how notions of emanation are expressed by the Apocryphon of John, just to give you a taste of that now, of a specific example. And Nimonad's thought performed a deed, and she came forth. Namely, she who had appeared before him in the shine of his light, this is the first power which was before all of them, and which came forth from his mind. She is the forethought of the all. Hi, my name is the forethought of the all. Her light shines like this, his light, the perfect power, which is the image of the invisible, virginal spirit, who is perfect. The first power, the glory of Barbalo, the perfect glory in the ions, the glory of the revelation. She glorified the virginal spirit, and it was she who praised him, because thanks to him she had come forth. This is the first thought, his image. She became the womb of everything, for it is she who is prior to them all the mother father, the first man, the Holy Spirit, the thrice male, the thrice powerful, the thrice named androgynous one, and the eternal ion among the invisible ones, and the first to come forth. Thrice named androgynous one. Not typical language to hear in some of the other Christian documents, but not unusual in the Nag Hammadi documents. We can talk about these types of Christianity together that share in common this general worldview I've been outlining to you but we'll see that they each have, the, that there's even variety within them, and you need to distinguish between them, nonetheless. They're not just one big conglomeration, Gnosticism. There's far more complicated scenario here. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity.
The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>